Well, uh, hello and welcome everyone to this Kennan Institute uh, discussion on uh, the Victory Day Parade and uh, the memory of the war, Russian current national security, military strategy, and general thinking about security. Um, I'm Matt Rojansky. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and I'm just extremely pleased uh, to be able to gather this dream panel for uh, uh, what I'm sure will be a lively discussion, certainly a very, very timely one on all of these topics. Um, before I get started, I want to remind you to stay up to date with our upcoming events and publications, uh, which you can find on our website. In particular, though, our podcasts, uh, which I find during this period of telework and social distancing is just really convenient to have your earbuds in and, and listen to podcasts. You learn a tremendous amount. I think I've listened to every single uh, one of our panelists today in podcast or uh, recorded lecture form. Um, so uh, we've had our longstanding uh, podcast, Kenanex, hosted by our very own uh, fellow Jill Doherty, uh, and as well as our newest podcast, The Russia File, which is, of course, the same name as our blog. Um, these are all words that 10 years ago didn't mean a whole lot, blogs and podcasts. But The Russia File latest episode is actually very uh, related to this topic. It's a conversation among uh, Isabella Taborowski, Max Trudelubov, and Masha Lipman about hidden narratives of World War II in Russia, um, which if anyone has seen the imagery, not only of this week's parade, that was of course the delayed uh, May 9th, 75th anniversary of Victory Parade that took place instead on Wednesday, the 75th anniversary of the 1945 Stalin Victory Parade. Um, but also the imagery of the new Cathedral of the Armed Forces. This is just incredible because it underscores, uh, for those of us who have not been living this for the last decade plus, just how much the Kremlin has, has made uh, the cult of military glory and memory of victory and of sacrifice into a kind of unifying national religion. And here it is linked up directly with the Orthodox Church. So some of this is discussed in the podcast. I think some of this will be uh, touched upon today and, and much else that we produce at the Kennan Institute. Throughout this program, uh, if you have questions, please submit them via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. And uh, we will be much more likely to read your question if you include your name and affiliation. We always like to attach uh, an individual to a question. So I want to go right to our phenomenal lineup of uh, speakers. Uh, and we'll start with, I'll, I'll just introduce each of them, I think, right before they speak. We very much hope that Sasha Goltz, whom we have uh, last in the lineup, will still be connected and with us the whole way through. Um, but yes, I'm going to start am. with, very good, Sasha. I'm going to start, though, with Olga Oliker, uh, who is Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group based in Belgium. Uh, she leads the organization's research and analysis, uh, policy prescription and advocacy in and about Russia, Europe, Turkey, the Caucasus, and Central Asia, so obviously a very narrow portfolio there. Um, her own research interests, as uh, those of us who've known her for many years know, centers on foreign and security policies in Russia, Ukraine, Central Asian and Caucasus successor states to the Soviet Union, as well as domestic politics in these countries, U.S. policy towards the region, and nuclear weapons strategy and arms control. So... Olga, um, please be sure to unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Okay, I appear to be unmuted. Um, I apologize in advance for any shininess. I am, in fact, in Brussels. We are having a heat wave, and I do not have air conditioning. So, you know, I, I apologize, but I can do nothing about that. So, I don't know who amongst us watched uh, the parade on Wednesday. I did not. But the very fact that there was a huge parade um, 
as uh, in Russia um, to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II underlines just how central World War II continues to be in Russia's narrative about itself and its policies, something you don't see in a lot of other countries 75 years after the war ended. The reasons for this are many, and they're social, cultural, and political. Uh, I'm looking forward to unpacking them with the other panelists in this conversation. It does seem to me, and this is somewhat observational, that a lot of it has to do with wanting to be cast as the good guy against the bad guys, uh, with not a lot of room for shades of gray. Uh, that's what's behind the Russo-Polish debates about World War II and efforts by other countries to shift narratives that have historically sometimes drawn attention to collaboration with the Nazis uh, and other times about the fight against them. World War II is something of a classic uh, good war in historical memory. So adding shades of gray to it is not appealing to countries that want to remember their history uh, heroically. But if um, everybody still wants to be the good guy, not everyone is quite as enthusiastic as the Russians about continuing to remember in such detail a war that really did take place three generations ago. From a military context, uh, World War II has cast a pretty long shadow on first Soviet and then Russian strategy, force posture, the way that Russians think about war. Um, the political scientist uh, and my former colleague, Austin Long, has written about the importance of the first war as a formative factor in a country's military culture, just to be a little geeky about it. So if you think about the USSR, you can think about World War I as the first war, and it does have um, a certain impact on how the Soviet Union thought about conflict. But because the military was so decimated in the interval between World War I and World War II, um, World War II also offers a lot of first war aspects, which had staying power in Soviet and then Russian military thought. I can give you a really long list of these and we can get really geeky about it. But what I wanna do is highlight two because they also tie us into a conversation we've been having in recent weeks about Russian nuclear doctrine. And these are an emphasis on firepower and artillery on the one hand, and a fear of surprise attack or preemption on the other. These don't only affect how the USSR and Russia structured and planned to use its nuclear weapons. They affected a lot about how Russia has fought and continued to fight. But what's interesting is we also see evolutions, right? It's not as though you can look to World War II and it tells you everything about how Russia fights war. Syria does not look like Chechnya. So the question of how long the shadow can really last, whether in the conventional nuclear realm, is important. But because forces are budgeted for and built and then stick around for a while, these shadows are sticky. So Russia and the Soviet Union's strategic uh, nuclear force posture has been very heavy on ICBMs, the strategic rocket forces, the component of the force that's gotten the most money and attention. I've made the argument before and probably will cheerfully make it at least for a little while longer that this is at least partly to do with the fact that the strategic rocket forces, um, Soviet ballistic missiles, grew out of its artillery program, which in turn was very privileged because of this World War II experience. The, for, the problem, of course, with that is that Russia, by emphasizing these systems, has got a force posture that looks a lot like a first-use force posture, though it's not in a situation where first use of nuclear weapons against most uh, adversaries in a large-scale context, or even a smaller-scale context, um, makes a lot of sense. And actually, it makes Russia vulnerable to a first strike by an adversary. 
United States, in contrast, emphasizes submarines. Russia also has those, but they're not as survivable for a variety of reasons that we can discuss if we really want to. So you've got, in part because of World War II, a country with a vulnerable strategic nuclear force posture and a fear of preemption, um, which means that it gets very nervous about these things. And if you look at its newest statement of nuclear deterrent policy, the principles of state policy of the Russian Federation, the sphere of nuclear deterrence, came out at the beginning of this month, you see echoes of World War II in that document, uh, for one thing, by formally enshrining launch on credible warning into a Russian document on nuclear weapons. Launch on credible warning is what you do if you don't have a particularly survivable force, but you're very worried about adversary preemption. So I think, you know, for me, this is some of, um, some of how I see World War II continuing to affect how Russia thinks. But I hesitate, again, to try to use World War II to explain everything. The way the United States fights wars has had a really important impact on how Russia thinks about conflict, the way others fight wars. And Russia, no less than other countries, fits its strategies and its approaches to the forces it has and the forces it wants to build. So origin wars like World War II matter, but the present matters too. And I would argue that for the historical debates about World War II and its importance, the war matters, but the present is also very important in understanding why we're having these arguments now. And I'll close there. Thank you so much, Olya. That's uh, really a wonderful uh, connective tissue between what uh, we saw this week uh, in live streaming video and on the pages of uh, many newspapers and have had, of course, foreshadowed for many months as we all wondered what would happen with the May 9th parade. Uh, and then the question that really matters, which is, you know, what is going to be the shape of the Russian military going forward? Uh, Mike Kaufman, who will speak next, uh, has lectured quite a bit on this topic, including, uh, you know, I recall a, a recent lecture I think you gave for Stanford, Mike, in which you uh, talked quite a lot about uh, the, the kind of enduring fear of the Russian leadership of a, a massive first strike by a technologically superior adversary that would have uh, a huge kind of rollback effect. I mean, essentially the classic Barbarossa, whose uh, anniversary we marked this month as well. Um, Mike, I'll, I'll just quickly introduce before going to you, uh, the director of the Russia Studies Program at CNA Corporation, a global fellow, of course, with the Kennan Institute here, and senior editor at War on the Rocks, uh, in which, by the way, I have an article uh, this month with my colleague, uh, Abe Denmark. Um, Mike's research focuses on Russia and the former Soviet Union, specializing in the Russian armed forces, military thought, capabilities, and strategy, but that will be no surprise considering the subject of today's panel. Mike, the floor is yours. Thanks, Matt. Um, thanks for hosting this wonderful discussion. I'm going to continue pulling the thread that Olya started with her wonderful opening remarks, um, first on how the fear of a surprise attack has morphed since Operation Barbarossa, and the profound significance that World War II has. And it has specific significance to Russian thinking about large scale or regional war, much less so to Russian constructs about sort of local wars or armed conflicts, right? But the truth is that we are living in a prolonged great power interregnum. It's been 70 years since World War II and we've not had a great power war since. And military cultures and strategies still reach back to lessons from this great conflagration. And first starting with this problem statement of strategic surprise. Over the decades since the war, it morphed first into a Soviet perpetual confirmation bias um, that there would be a plan for a strike and a strike would be disarming, paralyzing, or decapitating. During the Cold War, it took shape 
and Soviet military expectation of disarming nuclear first strike. In the mid-2000s and late 90s in Russian military, the concern was the disarming conventional strike, that conventional weapons could inflict strategic levels of damage, and that there could be a heavy U.S. investment in prompt global strike, and that there could actually do, do a successful counter-force strike against Russia's nuclear arsenal with conventional weapons and then pick up the rest of missile defense. That was pretty unrealistic, and I think that debate really got settled on the current Russian problem statement, which is concerned with a paralyzing and destructive airspace attack the problem was defined or codified as sort of new type warfare, which is a combination of political warfare during a threatened period of conflict to first destabilize the country. And this is what a lot of Russian national security leaders like Patrushev and others who give regular interviews speak to, right? Um, that the West will try to create this call movements in Russia, then followed by a sophisticated airspace attack that inflicts strategic levels of damage on the country and then paralyzes the military and its ability to respond. Um, the other two points I'd like to make is the indelible history of sort of World War II and Operation Barbarossa, both on civil military relations, military planning, and on Russian thinking about deterrence and strategy of war fighting. So the eve of the war is really an important story, because although Barbarossa leaves this lasting fear of a surprise attack, and we refer to a surprise attack, it was not. The Soviet high command knew it was coming. Um, and in fact, it knew the timing of the attack, but Stalin had issued orders not to deploy forces or to go on alert believing that this was the cause of belly Hitler was looking for at that moment, right? And Soviet political leadership profoundly misjudged Hitler's intentions. We know this in part due to good German disinformation, but also because of the past dependency in Soviet thinking on what Hitler intended to do. And this afterwards engendered considerable military distrust of political leadership that is, the military had to perpetually reckon with the proposition that when faced with an imminent threat to the survival of the nation, the political leadership would not make the right decisions on the eve of this threat, right? And this was not the only time the political leadership placed the Russian military in a terrible starting position. One can argue that's actually almost a Russian tradition to do it, right? And there are many conflicts where the Russian military ends up in a terrible starting point. So Soviet military distrust later on took the form of, say, the perimeter system, a semi-automated command and control system for nuclear retaliation, particularly after they saw Soviet political leadership perform fairly poorly in the early 1970s, during nuclear exercises. This system was still around today. Soviet general staff was not supportive of the war in Afghanistan. And when Agarkov, the chief of general staff at the time, suggested that there could be serious political ramifications from this war at a polar bureau meeting, he was politely told by Adropov that USSR had people whose job it was to handle politics. And his job was basically to do as told, right? Color inside your line. And so consequently, Russian military draws up operations and strategic operational plans and plans within plans in part because of an enduring skepticism believing that political leadership may hesitate during a threatened period of conflict when the moment comes, because that's been their experience. And now I'll turn to the last point, which is the impact on strategy and Russian thinking regarding deterrence. So Germany's attack on Soviet Union poses a, a real challenge for both deterrence theory and Russian military thought, right? Particularly for even for U.S. circles who prefer conventional deterrence by denial. The USSR should have deterred Germany. It had a large number of forward deployed forces. It had superiority numbers, tanks, artillery, even aircraft. Putting aside Hitler-based explanations, right? There are some enduring lessons that have stayed through the Russian military from both, from both the, the start of Operation Barbarossa and at least Russian experience with trying to do conventional deterrence by denial. And, and that history has not been very successful, right? Um, that is, the belief in the Russian military is that simply investments in war fighting are not going to deter a powerful adversary like the United States or technological superiority. So there's a consensus. The defense in large-scale war is fundamentally cost prohibitive, both because it is technically incredibly difficult, 
but also because the Soviet experience showed how costly a defense can be, the proposition of defense against a powerful uh, uh, country like Germany or the uh, United States today. And so Russian deterrence concepts are premised on raising the opponent's costs above their expected gains, as opposed to confidence in the belief that some newfound military technology will render defense viable. And hence, when Gerasimov speaks today, he describes Russian military strategy as premised on active defense, preemptive neutralization of threats, is if a war appears imminent, Russian military thinking calls for, and Gerasimov speaks on this quite a bit, preemptive actions to either deter the adversary, show them that the cost they will pay in the, in the conflict will dramatically um, exceed any gains they seek to attain, right? Or even contemplate a preemptive attack to destroy their forces, right? And so it's very hard to get anywhere in the Russian military today by arguing that the strategy of the Russian military in a large-scale regional war should be to defend in depth and then counterattack. At the end of the day, there is a philosophy that Russia should not and cannot fight another large-scale industrial war of the kind that the Soviet Union fought in World War II because of the incredibly prohibitive costs that it engendered and the memory of those costs that still lingered. Okay, I'll close on my comments on that and turn it back to you now. Uh, thanks very much, Mike. I've got tons of questions already. Um, I want to go right to Alexander, though, make sure we still have Alexander with us. Uh, yes, Alexander, yes, you have. Excellent. Very good. Um, so Alexander Goltz is the deputy editor of Moscow's online Yezhinyelde Journal, uh, the uh, weekly journal. Um, he also works as a military analyst for New Times magazine in Moscow. Uh, in 2018, he was a George F. Kennan Fellow here at the Kennan Institute, researching the consequences of uh, the state militarism revival in Russia. So, Alexander, I, I think uh, you have plenty to jump in on uh, on everything that uh, Olga and Mike have talked about. Please. Uh, uh, look, uh, I'd like to look at this parade and uh, everything that goes on with Russian armed forces from li a little bit different angle. Uh, for me, uh, this parade uh, shows again uh, that um, military force, armed forces in Russia is much more than uh, uh, just uh, uh, instrument of, on defense. It became something totally different. Uh, look, uh, Putin wanted uh, to um, deliver this parade in spite of, of a real risk of pandemia. Um, until now, thousands of people are ill of coronavirus in Moscow. And uh, it's a huge risk to just to gather people, uh, just gather uh, 14,000 of participants, 14,000 of participants, and a lot of guests in one place on Red Square. Uh, by the way, uh, Russian uh, military medical authorities, main medical department of MOD, was uh, really anxious of this situation. And they reserved 2,000, listen, 2,000 places in, hospital, in Moscow hospitals in order to cure those who can be um, victims of this infection. Nevertheless, uh, Putin uh, wanted this parade and he got it for very clear political reasons. Uh, this parade was important instrument 
of people uh, mobilization before this strange voting for constitutional amendments. Uh, all political technologies say, okay, it will mobilize Putin's supporters to vote for Mr. Putin rule the country until 2036. And it is very important. Uh, second point, uh, this parade, it's just what uh, Olga said, uh, is a demonstration on continuity between current Russia and Soviet Union, which won victory 75 years ago. This victory from Putin's uh, point of view, and it became absolutely clear from his uh, article published in um, National Interest, uh, is the, this victory is the main important reason why Russia should be permanent member in UN Council. It's the reason uh, why Russia has a right to solve future of another country. In, because uh, uh, Putin's vision of modern world is uh, classical realpolitik. The big guys are sitting Yalta table and solving future of smaller ones, trying to undermine force of each other. Uh, that is his vision of, um, uh, of modern, uh, modern world. And that's why uh, in this uh, victory day, uh, for him, it's much more important, uh, not banner, red banner uh, on Reichstag, but this uh, Yalta table, which gives him uh, a right to solve future. And to by the way, also to change the territories of other countries. Uh, I think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, this parade uh, stands on the same li line with opening of uh, main temple of armed forces. Um, two years ago, when uh, uh, main military political department was uh, established within MOD, its uh, chief General Kartapolo said absolutely frankly, we are going to develop new ideology for Russia, full stop. At that time, constitution strongly forbidden to have any ideology. Nevertheless, military pretend to develop this ideology. So this opening of um, main uh, temple of armed forces uh, showed us how this ideology can look like. Uh, for me, it's uh, the bizarre mixture of uh, totally mythological approach to great patriotic war with all these myths, such as myths 
about 28 uh, uh, soldiers of Panfilov division who stopped uh, German tanks uh, before Moscow. And uh, uh, the ultra-fundamental approaches of uh, Russian Orthodox Church, such as um, uh, condemnation of non-traditional sexual relations and unwillingness to stop domestic violence and many, many other things. So we have this strange mixture. Look, it was a usual argument um, when we spoke about can we name this new confrontation, new Cold War or not. The usual argument was, okay, Cold War as a bottom, as the basic of Cold War, it is um, ideological confrontation. Russia has no ideology. Now we can say that we are standing at the starting point when uh, this ideology begin, begins to evaluate, to develop. And uh, I think that's why uh, future years will be rather dangerous. To con fourth point, to conclude, all it makes arm, arm, armed forces the ideal symbol of a state. It goes back in my mind to the description of uh, Alfred Watts about militaristic state. The main feature of this state that uh, a real requirements for defense are neglected in order the rituals and military traditions. The parade clearly, if you look at it more attentively, clearly indicates uh, this trend. For just one example, uh, four types of uh, main tank participated in three types of uh, armed uh, vehicles and uh, two types of self-propelled artillery. All of us knows for sure that uh, one of the main features of uh, modern build military organization is desire for unification. But it's, it, it's not uh, so good uh, uh, for, for entertainment. And they, they used uh, four types of main tanks without asking the question how it looks like. So uh, just to conclude, armed forces began the main part of new ideology and new religion, if you like, of Russia now. And it became one of the main instruments of Putin's domestic and international politics. Thank you so much, Sasha. I'm, I'm especially glad that your connection actually got better in the course uh, of your remarks. I, I myself have often uh, wondered about that dilemma for many governments uh, with a shift to uh, smaller, more autonomous, and more stealthy systems, uh, the difficulty of parading big, loud, impressive, uh, heavily manned uh, equipment is certainly at least one for the PRshiki, if no one else. Uh, I want to remind 
uh, so, uh, Sasha, uh, please go ahead and go on mute and uh, also everybody else who's not speaking. Uh, we're going to go next to Jeff Edmonds. Before I do, I just want to remind everybody who wants to ask a question uh, to email that to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet it to at Kenan Institute, uh, or post it on our Facebook page, and please include your name and affiliation when posting. So uh, I just uh, have a little bit of background there. I want to make sure everybody's on mute except for Jeff. Um, who is a research, assist, a research scientist excuse me, at the Center for Naval Analysis, CNA, uh, and a global fellow at the Kennan Institute. Uh, his research focuses on the Russian military, foreign policy, Russian threat perceptions, and Russian information and cyber operations. Uh, previously, Jeff served as director for Russia on the National Security Council, as well as acting senior director during the 2017 presidential transition. So Jeff, uh, last but not least, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for, for having me. Great comments uh, by Alexander, uh, Michael, and Olya. I'd like to take the discussion back again into uh, the realm of military strategy. And as I thought about the parade, World War II, its impact on military strategy, and the recent nuclear doctrine, a common threat came to mind that I've actually been interested in for a number of years, and that's Soviet and Russian thinking about the initial period of war. Um, while focus on the initial period of war goes back to the 20s and 30s, it really takes on a life of its own um, after the initi initiation of hostilities by Germany and Operation Barbarossa. And as Mike correctly pointed out, that operation wasn't really a surprise. What I think was a surprise was how bad it went after that, right? I mean, by the, by the you know, November, December of 1941, the casualties uh, and, and loss of equipment was just incredibly massive. Um, and so what do we mean by the initial period of war but when Soviet military strategists looked back at the start of World War II and Operation Barbarossa, Barbarossa and what constituted the initial period of war, the, the discussion actually uh, varied a bit. In the beginning, it was, well, it's, it's when your main formations get to the fight. Well, that clearly wasn't the case. That was the thinking before World War II, Operation Barbarossa, and the Germans kind of threw that, that out of the window. Um, the next was, well, perhaps it's when you achieve your first strategic objectives. And they kind of pushed that off to the side, too. That's a little bit longer. And then by the, by the late 80s or so, um, you really get this idea that the initial period of war is really as short as when the conditions on the battlefield dictate that you need to change your initial war plans. And so that's really kind of a contraction of, of thinking about the initial period of war. And based on that, um, a lot of Soviet strategists see the initial period of war um, as really being just from June to July of 1941. That's an incredibly short period of time. So, so keep that in the back of your mind as, as I move forward. That discussion has continued today um, and only heightened in significance. When you look at, um, there are a couple of surveys done in the early 2000s of, of Russian thinking on the initial period of war. And actually in the period of 2006, 2007, 2008, um, the discussion of the initial period of war actually, the, the volume of that discussion dwarfed earlier conversations. And so that's, that's not just a, an intensification of the fascination of the, of the beginning of, of World War II. Um, it's really, it, it's a combination of that enduring memory, institutional memory of World War II and how it began, coupled with um, technological and doctrinal changes that have really, really shaped, shaped the, the character of, of modern conflict today. Most notably things like long-range precision strike, um, cyber space-based information, a greater interlacing of infrastructure that creates certain kinds of critical infrastructure that is damaged or destroyed early in a conflict can yield strategic results 
very early on in a conflict. So in one sense, World War II gives the gives the Russian Soviet discussion the vigor that I of the topic that I just don't think we we have as much in the West. And so when you look at Russian military doctrine procurement exercises, um, one clearly sees an understanding of, and an appreciation of how fast a conflict can change during its initial period, and the need to quickly gain the upper hand, say through an aggressive escalation management framework. There's also a lot of discussion about gaining information dominance in the, in, the, in the beginning of a conflict so you can confuse your opponent and take advantage of that and just gain the upper hand early on. And that brings me to the recent nuclear doctrine. And bear with me as I, as I try to connect these. I think an argument can be made that in the West, we generally, not everybody, but we kind of put nuclear weapons into a sphere of their own. Even if they're small enough to only blow up your backyard, they're nuclear and you just need to set those aside, that's a different discussion to have with Stratcom or somebody else. I don't think that Russian political and military leadership and strategists um, have such a clear division in mind. Um, I also think that the, the, the recent uh, nuclear document, document speaks much more to strategic nuclear weapons than it does to non-strategic nuclear weapons. And so it, it doesn't solve for the ill-named escalate to de-escalate debate. Um, but let's take the conditions mentioned in the document, wherein, when Russia reserves the right to use nuclear weapons when the very existence of the state is in jeopardy. And this is in line with earlier documents, no surprise there. And let's connect this to the initial period of war I was discussing earlier. Um, in a conflict with U.S. and NATO, given an emphasis on, this, on the importance of the initial period of war, coupled with hyperbolic Russian assessments of U.S. military capabilities and a foreign policy interpreted as regime change, and you might start approaching and bumping up against that threshold much earlier in the conflict than you might anticipate. Um, it's not that the threshold is lowered. You've just managed to get there a lot faster than you probably intended to. And I think that's just something that, that you know, as, as we think about Russian military strategy, the nature of, con I mean, the, the character of, of conflict today, um, and especially things like nuclear thresholds, I think that's important to keep in mind. So hopefully I've connected at least part of the legacy of the Soviet experience of World War II with Russian military strategy and the uh, recent nuclear doctrine. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Matt. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks very much to all four of you. Uh, I have a ton of questions and uh, there are many questions coming in from the audience as well. Um, but uh, I'm gonna just take full advantage of the moderator's prerogative here. Um, let me, let me start uh, with a couple of quick pointed questions uh, for each of you. I, I want to direct this one, uh, if I can, first to Mike Kaufman. Um, Mike, there, there's uh, obviously, and, and you've talked and written about this, uh, some kind of timeless universals to Russian uh, national security and strategic thinking um, kind of uh, foundational ideas you can trace into Soviet military doctrine and thinking and even Tsarist sort of, you know, the, the thousand year Russia to use uh, Putin's terminology. Um, but if you were to take modern, a quintessentially modern 21st century Russian military thinking, what is the biggest and most distinct element that exists today that has never existed before in kind of the self uh, concept of the Russian security establishment? Matt, that's a great question. Um, you have to accept that military establishments and strategic cultures tend to have much greater continuity than change. And strategic cultural change either takes place gradually or it takes rapidly after some tremendously traumatic event, like, say, the loss of a great power war or the dissolution of a country. But other than that, it doesn't sort of change very quickly. That is, most of the things you find in military thinking 
tend to be more continuities than they are dramatic departures or changes, unless there's some tremendous intervening experience that forces people to reconsider some fundamental or first order assumptions. And in general, um, I've not seen much of that in uh, the Russian military. To me, I think probably the core, at least um, the core concepts that comprise Russian military thinking today, that I do find to be interesting different is that for much of what I believe to be the interwar period and the post-war II period, Soviet military focused on the large-scale war, right? On which you would, against which you would deploy a mass mobilization army. And then it focused on large-scale strategic nuclear exchange and large-scale theater nuclear warfare in Europe, which would prove strategic. There was nothing small. There were no actual serious wars to really think about beyond the large-scale conflagration with NATO. And that conflagration could be two days long, it could be two weeks long, it could be three weeks long, but this was the plan. And if you read Russian military thought as it develops after like 2000, and you look at typology, like let's say in the military doctrine, see that the Russian military really began to build out alongside five types of conflict, right? Armed conflict, a war like Chechnya, local war, a war with a single state like Georgia or Ukraine, regional war, a war against a coalition of states, let's say NATO states backed by the United States, but a smaller sort of regional conflict in one theater. And then large scale war, sort of the global conflagration and nuclear war, which is strategic nuclear exchange. And probably the biggest departure you see in the Russian military is to find a way to reconcile the challenge they often had, which is how to have a military Job number one is to be able to defend and deter in a large scale conflagration, but to also be useful in a local war to be able to conduct an expeditionary operation in Syria. And these are, these are balances that the early Russian military couldn't find, it struggled with them quite a bit, even when the force was stabilized in the late 1990s. And the Soviet military did as well. It really didn't think that much about this. It sent the fourth echelon force to fight in Afghanistan. And, and what happened there didn't really influence Soviet military thought at all, right? It did not, it did not lead them to reconsider any major fundamental assumptions because they're so focused on that. So to me, this is probably the biggest transition, which is yes, there's still preparations for the large scale conflict with NATO, but now there's a real typology of wars and force appropriated for those wars and designations like general purpose forces versus strategic deterrence forces and so on and so forth. So at least in my view, Russian military thought has become much more robust and nuanced in that range of conflicts that it's trying to address. And it's less myopic in the way it sort of used to be. That's fascinating. And of course, makes me think a lot about the 19th century in which there were plenty of uh, extraordinary Russian forces uh, all over the place from what we now call Central Asia to uh, the uh, to Southeastern Europe, the Black Sea region, and heck, uh, even right into the center of Europe uh, in, the, in the rollback of Napoleon. Um, let me go to a, a totally different theme, though, but nonetheless related to history and ask this question of Olya, if I can. Um, Olya, I'm sure you've seen uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, long-awaited history article in the National Interest. Um, not surprising in terms of many of the claims that he makes, um, including uh, one uh, that uh, a couple of, of comments today have echoed, which is, that in fact, uh, you know, Barbarossa was not a strategic surprise. The Soviet Union was ready for it. Um, but uh, around the uh, German betrayal, the, the, the treacherous attack, um, which by the way, in the podcast I mentioned earlier on, on the Russia file, there's quite a lot of discussion of this very specific term, uh, treacherous attack. 
Um, Putin launches into a huge discussion of the West's essentially duplicitous diplomacy, uh, the West's effort to get Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union to fight one another and bleed one another. Um, and I happened to dig up a line, lest you, you doubt this, it's interesting, you know, uh, Putin's not entirely wrong, though his, his depiction is very colored. Harry Truman, none other than Harry Truman, who later in his summits with Stalin engaged in the Yalta uh, cutting up, of, uh, well, I guess that was FDR, but then uh, Truman afterwards lived with the cutting up of Europe. Um, Truman said, uh, as a U.S. senator in uh, 1941, after the German invasion, if we see that Germany is winning the war, we ought to help Russia. And if that Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. And in that way, let them kill as many as possible. Uh, that's actually quoted in the Washington Post a couple of years ago. So, oh, yeah. Hey, what, do you, what do you make of Putin's article? What do you make of the lessons for the way that he thinks about great power diplomacy today? So um, Putin's article is very much an effort to bring back the story about World War II that Soviet ch children learned in school, right? Um, even though they didn't learn about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as all, at all, that the Soviet Union were heroes, um, that they didn't have a choice about Molotov-Ribbentrop, and the, when you get into the betrayal story, though, I think it does get a little sketchy. But it's a fascinating history, and I actually, I love this, I mean, it's a horrible history, but it's really fascinating to look at. Because in the 30s, you have a Russian foreign minister, Soviet foreign minister, Maxim Litvinov, Jewish, huge Anglophile, working his butt off to try to get the, a deal with the French and the Brits. Makes some headway with the French, makes no headway with the Brits. A lot of the problem is they simply don't want a deal with the communists. They don't trust the communists. They do think maybe something can be worked out with the Germans. Uh, no headway. He keeps talking about collective security, keeps not working. Historians debate how serious he was, how seriously Stalin took him. Litvinov was definitely serious. The question of whether Stalin was just letting him run around, see if he gets anywhere, he probably won't, and then we'll make a deal with the Germans, or whether Stalin really thought that this was a way to avoid war, you'll get different arguments. But the bottom line is Litvinov fails, Molotov comes in, they make a deal with the Germans. They make a deal with the Germans. I don't think anybody thought that it was going to be forever, right? So this is kind of where you get into the betrayal. What's the betrayal? That you thought they would come later? That you thought that, you know, <laughs> you know, they betrayed us? That we figured we'd get two years out of it, two full years out of this? But no, I mean, I think the whole idea was that you're buying time, um, that they will eventually come after the Soviet Union, but you especially because Stalin had wreaked tremendous havoc on his armed forces during the purges, uh, not just the armed forces. Um, you need some time uh, to rebuild, but they didn't end up using that time effectively to rebuild and they did end up overwhelmed. Uh, so, you know, they may have expected it, but boy, were they not in fact prepared. And I think kind of bringing it back to Putin's story, this is about how we all write our histories. Um, you know, I, look, Molotov-Ribbentrop, from a moral standpoint, atrocious. Do, can one see why the Soviets ended up signing it? I mean, I'll probably get murdered for this, but you can see how the history gets you there. Um, I'll tell a personal story. 
I may be on this planet because of Molotov-Ribbentrop. Uh, my paternal grandfather was living in Pinsk, and when the Soviets took over their half of Poland, um, he went to work for a Soviet law firm. When the Nazis came in, that Soviet law firm evacuated him, my grandmother, and my uncles to Russia, into actual Russia. Um, hadn't done that, they would have died, as did the rest of their families. So, you know, I think Putin has a point that the Soviets weren't the only ones looking for deals with the Nazis. Um, I think he starts getting a little weaker uh, when he talks, you know, you know, we talk about treachery and so forth. This wasn't a deal that was meant to last. Yeah, as certainly a, a moral, uh, the, the collision of uh, morality with kind of strategic um, delaying or tactical delaying uh, in, in uh, great power relations is something very contemporary. Um, Sasha, I want to pivot to the very modern and even the kind of prospective uh, thinking about the future. We hear all the time in Washington, D.C., different scenarios by which conflict between NATO and Russia might be triggered and then what escalation management would look like. I would okay. imagine the escalation management discussion in Russia is not radically different, though there I know are some variations like the debate over this silly escalate to de-escalate concept. But I want to zero in on the conflict trigger. From the Russian perspective, are the same scenarios that Westerners imagine, something in the Baltic region in Estonia, something in the Black Sea region, are these the scenarios that Russia is imagining as triggering conflict, or is it something completely different? Um, uh, let me start uh, saying a few words answering your very stimulative question to, to Mike about modern warfare. I think uh, what is very new and very modern for Russian military culture now, it's the words Mike hates Gerasimov, so-called Gerasimov doctrine. Okay, I don't want to discuss if this doctrine exists or not, but the conclusion for Russian military thinking was very clear. We cannot divide the situation of war between uh, and the situation of peace. It means that war is lasting permanently. And if uh, it's lasting permanently, um, the only way to conduct this war is psychological operations and secret operations. And we can see a broad range of this operation produced by, uh, operations produced by Russia now. It's a very interesting question, I have no answer. If uh, psychological operation, psychological war, warfare is uh, going endlessly, who is it, what is the target of these uh, people who operate now? Maybe Russian people are the target of these uh, uh, psychological operations. Interesting uh, question. Uh, now turning to your question. I think, uh, um, for me, uh, I think that uh, now 
we are in a situation when uh, gray zones which divided troops disappeared in Black Sea, in uh, Baltics, everywhere. So it can be one scenario. Uh, the war can rise from some kind of incident. And I'm very happy that uh, 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 Russian and American uh, top military consult each other and I'm sure they have some decisions what to do in this situation. But there is another problem. Um, all of us know that uh, uh, Mr. Putin is so dedicated to our nuclear weapons. Each week he reminds uh, his Western counterparts that we are leading in arms race, that we have uh, uh, hypersonic weapons. The fact is that if to accept the situation, if uh, to accept the perception that we are in new Cold War, uh, Russia has no resources Soviet Union had, uh, no, no good economy, uh, no alliances, uh, very old population. We cannot raise five, five million uh, armed forces. What we have, we have nuclear weapons. And if to speak the most possible scenario, I think it uh, will evaluate in situation of uh, some, uh, some big international crisis, such as Crimean annexation. Remember, Mr. Putin in interview said that he thought to put uh, on alert Russian strategic rocket forces. But knows what did he mean in reality? Because Russian strategic rocket forces are on permanent alert. But nevertheless, let's imagine any other huge conflict. May maybe something in Donbas. Uh, or Ukraine, or maybe Kazakh, uh, Kazakhstan. Um, uh, I, I cannot exclude that uh, next years will be years of uh, huge uh, mutiny in Central Asia. And Russia, uh, trying to defend itself, can take uh, the uh, northern regions uh, of Kazakhstan. Why not? And imagine in this situation, Mr. Putin's uh, put on alert uh, Russians, announced that he put on alert Russian strategic rocket forces. Uh, I have no doubt we have not Obama but Trump now in DC, and I have no doubt that this guy immediately will state something the same. And from this particular uh, moment, all of us will be hostages uh, of uh, early warning systems. systems. Uh, do you know how many mistakes American early warning system made between 1970 and 1980? When I found this figure, I was shocked more than 20,000 times. And again, in this particular moment, 
we will be hostages of these systems. <laughs> so if you asked my scenario of crisis, it is. Anybody hear me? Yes, Sasha, thank you. Uh, I, think, I think you may have gotten cut off at the end, but uh, that, that was a great answer. And I think definitely uh, misreading early warning is a, a very real scenario. I, I find it striking that you mentioned, uh, you know, alerting the already alert systems uh, during the Crimea crisis, because I think if anything, uh, the lesson for the Kremlin from Crimea uh, should have been that uh, most of the uh, scenarios that the West uh, now imagines as uh, potential uh, openings to a crisis with Russia, uh, in fact, may begin a political crisis and a diplomatic crisis, but are very unlikely to translate uh, to military escalation, uh, again, at least judging by 2014. I want to uh, give one more pointed uh, direct question to Jeff, and then I promise I'm going to go to the many questions that we've uh, received from our listeners. Um, Jeff, my question for you is this. Um, very often in uh, U.S. writing, and even in official uh, formal uh, sort of uh, doctrinal uh, strategy statements coming from Washington, you hear talk about so-called global security challenges, 21st century challenges, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know, pandemic, obviously at the top of the list now, uh, climate change, uh, the role of non-state malign actors, all of these things um, doesn't take much argument to show are really, really evident for Russia today. Um, and yet it's very striking uh, that Russia's formal security doctrines, at least, seem to focus overwhelmingly on, you know, state-to-state -state conflict, big or small, the five sort of concentric circles that Mike talked about. Um, but if Russians think about these, what we would call 21st century challenges, how do they approach them? Uh, is it the same way that we would approach them in the West? Is it sort of a non-issue? Are they kicking the can down the road? Like, what is Russian thinking about these things? No, I mean, it's, well, our response obviously in the US hasn't been the best and that's been um, critiqued quite a bit. But I think, the, no, I think the Russians give much more, um, consideration of those other things and I think we tend to focus on this Western analysts um, in general we tend to focus on their and they, they do they are hyperbolic about you know the threat the US poses to the Russian state I think at times but I wouldn't say that they that they discount those other threats um, I mean I find you know in reading not just the official documents but also the conversation that, that's happening among um, you know, more, more junior foreign policy and military specialists in Russia, that there is a, a very broad concern about uh, the challenges of what they perceive to be this new world order that's coming to be, um, that's much more multipolar um, or polycentric, however you want to describe that. There's a lot of consideration of things like pandemics and, and non-state actors. And uh, I don't want to say rogue states, I don't quite use that term, but but just just a, a very fluid environment that, that in one sense, they see as, as being more stable in the future, but there's talk of also that transition and having to take all of these other exogenous factors in consideration, like you suddenly have a pandemic um, that, that, that's global. So I do think there's a lot of consideration of that, and I think the discussion's pretty rich. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. There, there, there's no question that Russian uh, discourse about the global environment always talks about things being fluid and chaotic and lots of... So 
I, I, I think that the idea that it both fades into the background, but also underscores that we are living in a different world than the world of the 1990s, in which many Americans arguably are, are still living, uh, is a very good point. Okay, uh, let me take a question now uh, from Hannah Wilson, uh, who describes herself as a UK lawyer and former British government analyst. This is a great question. Um, for anyone who wants to jump in on it, and I think the best way is for you to just speak up, um, how does the Russian political elite uh, manage to square the myth of Russian military glory during World War II? Uh, I just want my own commentary. It's not totally mythical. There's a whole lot of glory there. But uh, with the current issues uh, in the Russian military, such as hazing of junior recruits and poor pay, and certainly there are more issues than that. Anyone want to comment on that? Alexander, perhaps? Olga? I can. Please, Alexander. I can. Uh... Look, uh, first of all, uh, uh, there is no news now, or almost no news, about hazing or even about any real problem uh, within Russian armed forces. Uh, Mr. Shoigu, who is uh, our defense minister, uh, managed to build uh, a system of total uh, secrets uh, over all structures of MOD, and uh, there is not a lot of knowledge uh, for many of us uh, what's really going uh, within armed uh, within Russian armed force. And the second point, uh, we are moving rather rapidly. Uh, that elite will be to the situation when elite will be strongly forbidden to discuss anything about uh, great uh, patriotic war, except uh, this Soviet-type mythology. Uh, look, uh, it is forbidden by law to misinterpret history. And any, any uh, real researcher or person who want to discuss some rather unpleasant pages of Second World War, uh, he had simply shut up. So there is no such discourse among Russian elite now to compare bad status uh, of our armed forces, which officially is excellent, and uh, the glory pages of our military history. Um, let me uh, throw in another question. This one comes from Rick McPeak, an adjunct professor at uh, George Washington University. Um, he asks, uh, what are your thoughts on what Dima Adamski calls Russian nuclear orthodoxy? Uh, for those who don't know Dima Adamski, our colleague has written a fascinating book uh, about the interplay between Russian Orthodox Church and orthodoxy and really actually Russia's nuclear forces and its military. And I would broaden that if I can to ask about the role of the church across the board in the military and then also the role of this, this military uh, legacy memory history in Russia's kind of state religion today. I, I, that interplay is just absolutely fascinating. Does anybody want to comment on that? Again, yeah, Olga, go ahead. If I can take that, I think Dima Domsky does a really fantastic job of describing a relationship a lot of people, including in Russia, had no idea existed, 
which is that there has over the years grown up to be a real interpenetration between the nuclear, uh, military nuclear world, including the research world and the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, this is part of a broader um, increased role for the Orthodox Church, increased use of the Orthodox Church as a um, marker of what Russia is. Uh, and, you know, in education, in culture, uh, just the role of the church keeps growing and growing and growing um, in the sense that people point to it, right? And in the military, all of the military, right? You, you know, this new cathedral and so forth. What's interesting and what it's really hard to kind of figure out um, is what does that actually mean? What does that mean for the impact, if any, on military strategy? Does it change military strategy? What does it mean for how the church, does the church now have influence or is the church just being used? Um, what does that do for religious freedom in Russia, um, whether in the armed forces or through education? How, how is this all going to play out? And I think, so we've got this, um, we've got this independent variable as it were, right? We know that there is this relationship, but it's, we don't know yet, um, in part because it hasn't played out, just how it's, how it's going to, how it's going to impact much of anything. We see bits and pieces, you know, kind of a, an interesting point is that there's clearly a debate within the church on whether or not they should uh, keep blessing nu um, nuclear missiles, which they had been doing. And then was, uh, about a year ago, kind of this, you know, maybe we should stop blessing weapons of mass destruction. So the question of how these things shake out, what kinds of debates you get and how it actually affects wars. I mean, the war in Ukraine, huge role of narratives of the church from both sides. I think this is a terrific area of study and not one that has been fully grappled with. Uh, if I can, I, I want to stay on this question and invite any other comments and just underscore, it seems to me, I mean, that Dima's, Dima's thesis is fascinating. I make no claim on uh, verifying it or not. It, there are some elements of it that are almost uh, impossible to believe. But in a sense, as long as the, the relationship between the ROC and the Kremlin is hand in glove, the way it has been at many times in Russian history, uh, including in modern Russian history, in a sense, it's almost irrelevant, right? It's, it's one of the many trappings and features of Kremlin power. But then there are these signs of, of fraying, uh, most recently over coronavirus, where you have you know, the state ordering people to respect the quarantines, to wear masks, do social distancing, and then you have priests saying, nah, forget about that, come to services, come to church, we'll bless you, holy water and all of that. Uh, or, uh, you know, these, these fringe cases like uh, this rebel monk who's taken over, uh, you know, a neighboring um, uh, nunnery in, in, in the Ural region. I mean, it's not unprecedented in history that there would be schisms in the Russian Orthodox Church, let me put it that way. So any thoughts about the ways in which the church's own agenda uh, may impact the kind of um, uh, foundational aspects of, of Russian security doctrine, nuclear or otherwise. I can't, I can't necessarily see if people have hands up. No? I mean, I, I can just say yeah, that, go, say that the, more, the more the church diverges from what the Kremlin wants, the less the church gets to have that <laughs> bigger role. <laughs> That's a fair point. The, ch the church has been um, 
constrained and rolled back in, in some of its prerogatives before. All right, look, let me go to another question from the audience. Um, uh, Danny Kenyon uh, from the US military asks, what is the participation of Moldovan forces in Wednesday's parade uh, imply about the future military relationship between Russia and Moldova, uh, and in turn between Moldova and Western militaries? I always love a question about Moldova. Alexander, thoughts on that? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, I think it's not uh, the relationship uh, between uh, uh, Moldova and Russia, it's about relationship between two presidents. Uh, uh, we know that uh, position of uh, existing Moldovan president is not very tough in his country. Not, uh, not, it's not very strong. And one of uh, his uh, main, the main points of his position is uh, his brilliant uh, friendship with Mr. Putin. So I think uh, these uh, troops represent only the fact of uh, this friendship and possible uh, Putin's support to this particular Moldovan politician. Unless there's anyone else on that, let me take this question from Sir John Scarlett, who is the former head of MI6, uh, the UK's Foreign Intelligence Service, and also the co-chair of the Wilson Center's Global Advisory Council. Um, he asks uh, about the nuclear war scare of November 1983, uh, whether that apparently genuine fear of a nuclear first strike by the United States uh, still exists at top levels in the Kremlin. Mike, okay. go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it just briefly. So uh, the, the fear is different. And there's scholarship that debates to what extent the 1983 nuclear scare really was a scare. Um, that is, that to what extent that history is overly exaggerated on how close the United States and Soviet Union actually uh, came to conflict. Um, not, to, not to sort of undersell it, but I think the principal concern today is I sort of tried to pull an intellectual thread earlier on in the conversation is not that there's necessarily going to be a surprise attack, surprise nuclear attack by the United States. Although there's still lingering concern. And if you look at what people invest in, in terms of force modernization, there's some merit there because both sides continuously invest in qualitatively improving their arsenals, making them more precise, right? And there's additional considerations that flow from investments in missile defense about sort of the long-term strategy of both sides and the potential for undermining the retaliatory second strike. And if you read works by Austin Long, um, Q. Lieber, others about stalking the second strike, you really find out that, hey, once you dig into it and if you know what's being talked about, there are a lot of challenges with the assertion that second strike uh, survivability endures. And it's not a continuous sort of process and fight between people trying to make that survivable and reliable and people that are trying to actually make that less secure and pursue a good damage limitation strategy. But I think the main problem set today is really the concern that there will be a threatened period of conflict that will begin with political warfare. And I'll pull a bit, maybe slight nuanced differences with what Sasha said. The Russian military writes about political warfare during the threatened period of war. So that's kind of the buildup for it, okay? But it's not responsible for most of the activities that take place there. Armored warfare officers are not political warriors, okay? This is ridiculous, okay? Gerasimov always says, he says, look, there are all these other efforts run with regard to political warfare, information warfare, 
by other agencies with their own sources of funding. The job of the military is not to be in charge of this effort. We don't do this. Our job is to coordinate non-military means with military means and the coercive power of military means, right, to deter our adversaries. That's what the Russian military does. That's what that 2.8 percent, uh, you know, of GDP with another 1 percent of military expenditure goes to tanks, planes, submarines. It's not political warfare business, right? So this is what Gerasimov talks about. This is where his doctrinal thinking is. They're all they're all deeply aware of the political warfare threat, but their real concern whenever they talk about new type warfare is say yes, it'll start political warfare, and then what comes? An advanced airspace attack with standoff missiles, precision capabilities, right? that then paralyzes the Russian military and inflicts strategic levels of damage on economic and military critical infrastructure. That was, that's what worries them. And the reason why that worries them, of course, conventional weapons are usable. They're far more usable than nuclear weapons, right? Um, and the fact that they're very concerned about how good the United States could be. Now, I'll, I'll close out by this by saying, militaries generally suffer from a pervasive set of threat inflationist concepts where they always assume that the outside is 12 feet tall, okay? And, and, and that is very common in, in both the way Russians talk about the United States. It's an interesting mix in how Americans talk about Russia because usually they can't decide if Russia's four <laughs> feet tall or 12 feet tall. It's very hard to find someone in between, right? Um, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Yeah, oh yeah, please. Still unmuted. Very fast. Um, I think Mike is absolutely right about the way that the Russians think about this, but I would just kind of point out um, that in both uh, American and Russian narratives, there is a militarization of politics, right? When you talk about information war, when you talk about political, uh, political war, um, you're talking about information, you're talking about propaganda, and you're talking about politics. If you're a Klauswitzian, right, war is an extension of politics by other means, you've just flipped that. You've just decided that everything is war, and there's just political and information and economic ways of going about it. Um, in Russia, the military would say it's not responsible for it, but if it's looking at all of it as warfare and it's looking for where it comes in, you do potentially increase the risk of conflict. And I think this, in the United States, it's arguably even worse because the military does more and more of this stuff. So, and you know, on some of the information stuff in Russia as well. So I, I do wanna highlight the, that the militarization of narrative actually does uh, sometimes turn into the militarization of politics. Um, Can I, I can't. Uh, say Please, yes, uh, exactly. Words? Yes, uh, go ahead. Just uh, uh, to about Russian thinking about war or not war. Uh, I doubt seriously that uh, Gerasimov will share the views that uh, military are not responsible for war during uh, peacetime. Uh, look, he permanently insists that uh, in defense, all resources are, had to be concentrated. Nevertheless, watch what uh, agency produced these resources. All resources have to be concentrated uh, under MOD. In uh, MOD building, now there are groups of each uh, agency, uh, so for uh, so-called power agency, is presented. It's no doubt all the strategic exercises include participation of uh, different, uh, wide range of different uh, agencies, including National Bank, for example. So uh, I cannot share the idea that uh, a Russian military wants to divide. It's military 
means it's non-military means. The problem is that uh, now we can see the serious shift in Russian military thinking here. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what Sasha's arguing against there. So the statement's clear. The Russian military is the lead coordinator and integrator of military and non-military means and confrontation. The non-military means belong primarily to other organizations within Russia. Okay. And military are controlled, and are are controlled by the Russian military. No, they're not, but okay. Well, let me, let me uh, pull that thread just a little bit more with a question from Leilani Lansing. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but essentially she's asking um, that if uh, surveys show, and I believe this is still correct, that the most trusted institution in Russia is the military, why is it that no political leader of Russia since 1945 has been chosen from among the military brass? And more broadly, um, why is it that the military seems to respect what Mike is describing as this division of control over very significant security functions in the country? Is that an intra-Siloviki kind of uh, gentleman's agreement? I mean, what is it that, that controls that? I mean, I think okay. it's a perpetual fight for resources. I don't think it's, a, it's an agreement that that will codify it, right? But at the end of the day, there are political and civilian functions, right? And the military takes over those functions, right? During wartime, during a period of mobilization. Uh, and there are actually clear distinctions between putting aside the rhetoric that yes, of securitized politics, that everybody sees everything as war today. And it's not clear if anyone can actually see any, any normal behavior of any state as they don't refer to as war, right? Political war, information war, any activity in public diplomacy is seen as war. Both in yes, the United States Weaponization and of everything. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually crazy because if everything is war, then war doesn't exist as an intellectual concept, right? Like, and it's not possible to differentiate anything from anything else. And it becomes a giant kitchen sink for people to have wonkish panel discussions about. So my view on that is, okay, it's not really the reality. The reality is like Russian military actually has pretty good phasing concepts about who takes over civilian authorities and functions when. That's what they do in strategic command staff exercises. And they understand at what point of a threatened period of conflict or in what type of conflict, they're going to take over all those functions, right? But during day-to-day -day period, that is not the case. There's actual civilian leadership in Russia. There are civilian authorities. There are other agencies. And there are Siloviki and other national security organizations who fight for control of resources to engage in some of these activities, right? And of course, the military argues with them and says that it should have part of that mission. And then they say that's nice and, and, and said they should have part of that mission. Um, we'll close on that. Alexander, Jeff, Oli, any, uh, anything you okay. want? Okay, uh, let's uh, speak about definitions. Uh, Mr. Shoigu, who is he? He is military or civilian? Okay, he has epaulets, but he did not serve armed forces a single day. Uh, it's a big, interesting That's question. Okay. Sorry? He's the defense minister. I mean, it's a different Yes, he role, is. Yeah. But before, he did not serve a single day uh, in, in the armed forces. He's not professional military. Uh, in a I lot think of countries, that's normal. Sorry? In a lot of countries, that's normal. Right? It's yes. part of the civilian yes. control. Yes. You it's, put a civilian in charge of the It's minister. very normal. normal. But uh, here we have very strange uh, combination. When military... When civilians um, wear military uniform and pretend to be military, 
and uh, it uh, it leads uh, to total uh, misunderstanding between in uh, military civil military relations because these so-called militaries they do not represent civilian authority be, uh, in military organization more and more they try to play a role of representative of military before top uh, civilian authorities that is uh, that is a problem of sergey ivanov who who oh, 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 okay he had uh, big epaulets but of course he was not military and if to answer the direct question why not professional militaries moved to the political scene of russia my answer is uh, because uh, the Soviet military education and Soviet indoctrination. Uh, the main goal uh, in uh, Soviet military academy was to stick out any idea of political activity. That's why in turbulent nineties, uh, uh, when we have uh, Lebitz, uh, Rochlin, many other prominent military leaders who, who confront against uh, top uh, leader of the country. At the same time, uh, military ignored all their appeals. And I think uh, this, uh, this situation will exist next five, seven years until last Soviet type military will uh, leave this scene. Um, let me introduce one final idea because we're, we're running very short on time and then I'll give you all a chance to, to comment with any final thoughts on that or on anything else. Um, there's a, a new book out uh, called Putin's People by Catherine Belton, it's quite interesting. Um, and, and the basic thesis is that you know, Russia is still a KGB state and that since the 1980s, the KGB has been planning uh, ways to preserve its uh, wealth, power, and influence, and then to continue its main goal, which was, of course, to pursue a Cold War against the West. Um, I guess the question I have giving uh, from that thesis and relating directly to this discussion of kind of civil versus military control is, I mean, look, the KGB, uh, and I understand it's not the same as the GRU, military intelligence versus civilian, it's still a paramilitary organization. For that matter, Mr. Shoigu, you know, headed a paramilitary paramilitary organization as well for decades, which was the Russian Emergency Management Services. Uh, it seems to me, as long as power is in the hand of what can be broadly described as siloviki, that is the sort of power ministry people who have ranks, who follow hierarchy, and who are not engaged in what we would think of traditionally as politics, civilian politics. Uh, then it would be fair to describe whether you're saying the military is the most trusted institution or the intelligence services, foreign intelligence, what have you, it would be fair to describe the Russian state as essentially a militarized or securitized state all the way to the very top. The fact that Mr. Putin doesn't wear epaulets in public appearances is essentially secondary. Uh, I guess my question for you is, do you buy that thesis? Do you buy that at the end of the day between the kind of civilian politicians of the Soviet system and the post-Soviet system and the security apparatus. The security apparatus won 
and it controls everything. And it kind of doesn't matter whether it's the uniform military with tanks and airplanes or the spies, they're all kind of the security apparatus. I see a wry, I see a wry smile from Mr. Kaufman. Go ahead. I think that's an easy thesis to make in these times, would be my first comment. And uh, it certainly falls on to um, notions that, that, are, that are well held about how Russia's run. And I, th I think the comment I'll make here is that I don't see the intelligence people of today as the Andropov types of the Soviet period, right? The professional intelligence aesthetics, the true national believers. I think that to the extent that Russia has a national security elite, over time it became, it became to be merged with an oligarchic economic elite, what we talk about when we say Russia's kleptocracy, and that these people, yes, refer to them as Sulaviki, but in many ways, these are uh, enriched individuals engaged in rent-seeking enterprises. They hold national security positions. There's also, they're also incredibly wealthy. They're not the same individuals as people refer to from the 70s and 80s that you, when you say KGB of that time period. And, and in that respect, I don't see it necessarily at all as a state run by intelligence people. That mindset certainly predominates by those individuals who have it and have that experience. And it's their threat perceptions, right? Why these threat perceptions endure? Because strategic culture doesn't change. And strategic culture is going to have a hard time changing if many of the people in charge are actually from the late Soviet period and had their formative time there, just in general, right? But I don't buy big parts of this entire thesis that Russia's run um, by this intelligence community, or in a sense that this is really meaningful as an explanative theory of Russian state behavior, right? It helps explain aspects of the mindset. But to me, there's a lot of other nuances and factors here that are just important to consider. And that this elite, you know, is intelligence in name, right, only, or with a national security background in name only. But much has changed over the last two decades in terms of who these people are. And they're, of course, surrounded by lots of people who don't have this intelligence background. That's the reality. How do you account for all of them, for all the people uh, either in sort of uh, in the sort of run-seeking economy and all the crony individuals who actually have zero intelligence or national security background at all? What, how do you explain uh, sort of their origins or their role, right? So the reality to me is that this is a very reductionist explanation, and it can be added to the list of reductionist explanations of sources of Russian conduct. Okay, Jeff, I see you nodding. You want to come in on this with some final thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with Mike's great point. There's, there's always, a, there seems to be a tendency, especially in policy circles in the West, to really, as Mike said, this reductionist approach to things. Either, you know, there's only one person that really lives in Russia, and that's Putin, and we just need to, you know, once he goes away, they're all going to, you know, bloom and whatever. And I guess there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuanced analysis that I think is missing from the conversation. Um, and I just, I would push back on any kind of thesis, whether it's about the military is 10 feet tall, two feet tall, um, it's a police state, I mean, it's a KGB run state. I mean, I think all of those types of arguments, I'm just very skeptical anytime that they come up and they come up pretty often. It, I find that the situation is much more complicated than that. Yeah, which is not a dig against the book, by the way, which I have not touched or opened. I am simply going off of what you said is in there, Matt, just to be clear. Because if yes. the author of this book is watching the discussion, well, I, I recommend it. It's worth it's worth reading, but I, I do think that's a fair summation of the argument, and it, and and, yeah. and it won't surprise you that I disagree with a big part of it as well. Sasha, oh, oh yeah, you want to conclude with okay. any thoughts here? Can I? Please. Um, so I think uh, 
we have, uh, um, by the way, we have a dozen of different agencies in Russia where is military service. Uh, so formally, all these people, FSB, SVR, uh, then uh, uh, emergency ministry and all others formally are military. The reason why um, all, the, all the bosses who uh, rule these agencies are so-called ministers with the star. It means that they report not to prime minister, but uh, uh, to president himself. And uh, we are repeating the structure of uh, uh, Second Reich uh, uh, cabinet in Prussia than in, in Germany. So uh, I don't think we can say that uh, uh, the picture uh, is that uh, some people from KGB or other agencies uh, rule totally mit militarized country. And when Mr. Putin and his uh, lieutenants tried to build this regime. Of course, they had in, uh, in their heads uh, military structure, military uh, power vertical. It is important. And again, uh, recalling Alfred Watts and his book, Militarism, uh, the most dangerous are not military military. The most dangerous are civilian militarists who thinks about military structure in ideal forms. They don't know really military life, but they want to restrict the country according military rules. It's directly, I think, what we have in Russia now. Sasha, thank you. I, 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 we have just like four minutes remaining, but I can't help mentioning that when you brought up, you know, 19th century Prussia and the cabinet, uh, I'm reminded of my, my last trip to Moscow where I got to physically go in and see the exhibit uh, in the Novaya Tretakovka uh, of Repin paintings. And there's this famous painting of the Tsar's Council of Ministers, I think it is, with, you know, it, it's, it's like Absolutely. dozens and dozens of individual portraits. And there are like 50 different kinds of uniforms all these yes. old, fat, bearded men, each one of which has a uniform, not a single one of whom looks like a serious military man, uh, but it gives you a sense of, you know, kind of what a militarized political cabinet can be. Olya, the final word is yours. Okay, um, so very quickly, echoing some of what has already been said, there is a difference between militarized and military. And Russia has long traditions of intelligence services, and it has a long tra military tradition, and these are different things. There are occasional overlaps between them, but they are different things, and they are very different traditions. And the military's tradition is very much of staying in its own lane, although I would argue that some of the militarization of policy in general may be muddying that now. But historically, Russia has had a military that salutes and follows orders, even if it doesn't like them. Intelligence a little different and a little more proactive and a little more engaged and a little more involved. So I think, um, you know, it's not, it's not that crazy for a former intelligence uh, official to rule from Moscow, right? That's uh, 
Putin is not the first. Um, I don't, however, think the KGB is in charge. I think Vladimir Putin is in charge. I don't think that Vladimir Putin is in charge means that Vladimir Putin, Putin controls everything that happens in Russia. I think Russia is a complicated place, like many places, and Vladimir Putin, Putin sleeps at least, I'm going to guess, four hours a night and can't do everything himself. So lots of people, military, intelligence, emergency ministries, agriculture, agriculture education, the church, are doing their own thing until somebody tries to bring them into line because they don't like that thing. And understanding that complex dynamic is why we all still have jobs. Well, and I, I hope very much it's why we do discussions like this and that we'll continue to do them. Thank you all so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Mike, Olya, Sasha, Jeff, just really wonderful insights. This session has been recorded, uh, so we're going to promote it widely. And uh, again, thank you all so much for your questions and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.